Break out your beach towel, you know you deserve that sun lounger. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that paves the road to British-German harmony with good intentions. Each week we're going to say hello to common joys and quirks and auf Wiedersehen to intercultural ignorance. That is at least the plan. I'm Katja Hoyer, a German historian living in Britain. And I'm Oliver Moody, a British journalist based in Berlin, where, at the time we're recording this, an era is in the process of coming to an end. Just a few S-Bahn stops away from where I'm sitting, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, is preparing to clear 16 years' worth of clutter from her desk drawers, although she might not want to do that too quickly as we'll see she might be there for a while yet and I wonder what's going through her mind as she contemplates her retirement (laughs) I reckon she's probably making a map of bird parks to visit the last time she was asked what she would actually do with all of that free time when she gains it uh, she couldn't really think of much she kind of just said yeah I'm gonna go and have a little nap and then think about what I might do with my life um, but she did look supremely happy the other day when she was photographed at Marlow Bird Park in uh, the northeast of uh, Germany with dozens of little jolly little rainbow lorikeet parrots um, for company so I reckon the transformation from austere chancellor to Disney princess seems like a solid retirement plan um, but will the future be quite so sweet for Germany, do you think? It might be a while before she can take a proper nap. Um, the other day, a German political scientist bet me a bottle of claret that Angela Merkel would still be there to deliver her traditional New Year's Eve address to the nation um, in a few months' time because uh, the process of building the next German government is not going to be straightforward. Um, at the moment, we're recording this on the day of the election, uh, so we don't know what the outcome's going to be. But whatever happens, it's very likely that we're about to go into um, coalition negotiations that will probably be happening in parallel between all sorts of different constellations of parties, um, depending on the results, possibly both the Social Democrats, who are centre-left, and the Christian Democrats, who are sort of centre-right, will be trying to woo over two smaller parties to try and um, set aside their very large ideological and policy differences and um, form a parliamentary majority with them. That process is... um, well, there's no real roadmap for it, astonishingly. There's no sort of cons- constitutionally set out procedure. There's only a set of conventions. So we don't really have a, a blueprint for what's about to happen. So if the future is that uncertain, should we not look to the past instead? You sound exactly like a historian. Thanks. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Uh, but in all seriousness, we should... Um, or whoever really ends up leading uh, Germany might be able to take a leaf out of one of Germany's Germany's previous chancellors, perhaps the most popular and most Anglophile of all of them, uh, Helmut Schmidt. So a few months ago, Katja, you posted on Twitter the results of a 2015 YouGov poll in which Germans were asked to pick the best post-war chancellor. I sort of naively expected that the winner might have been Konrad Adenauer, who oversaw the reconstruction after the Second World War, or Helmut Kohl, who oversaw reunification, but it wasn't either of them. No, it's funny that people have always um, in in polls, and I mean that 2015 one is a uh, is I think the latest example of a large poll. But even before then, they always rank um, Helmut Schmidt as one of the most popular, or usually the most popular of Germany's uh, post-war uh, chancellors. 
It is an interesting one because actually he never won an election outright. Um, so when he became uh, chancellor, it was really because his predecessor, Willy Brandt, had been embroiled in, in various different political scandals um, and had to resign. And so he became chancellor by, by default, being or having been his uh, finance minister uh, beforehand. Um, and then, yes, he did win an election in 1974 and then another one in 82. But his party did not come out as the largest political party. He just ended up uh, making a coalition with the free liberals and thereby forming a majority, even though uh, the CDU, CSU had actually come out as the largest political party. So it is perhaps somewhat surprising that nonetheless uh, he's held in such high regard uh, by Germans. Um, I think this is largely to do with his own personal charisma. Uh, he comes from Hamburg originally and has got that sort of northern stylishness about him um, and, and is very sort of, um, yeah, likeable and, and humorous in, in the way that he comes across and also very outspoken. Um, he's sometimes been dubbed in the in the media Schmidt the Lip uh, because he is just so um, vocal and, and direct in the way that he, um, you know, talks about uh, things. It's, it's sometimes also been said that he was in the wrong party, so I think that's why he appeals so widely as well, because he's he's a fairly centrist politician. So for a social democrat, um, he's actually fairly uh, sort of, you know, located at the right-hand wing of his political party and therefore appeals to quite a lot of people in hindsight because they can sort of make of him what they want. Um, he dealt fairly resolutely with various different uh, political extremist movements, in particular the Red Army Faction, a, a left-wing terrorist group um, that basically murdered and abducted their way into a better future, or so they thought. Um, and Helmut Schmidt was kind of absolutely resolute. When they went in, into prison, eventually a lot of them, and it went on hunger strike, he, he kind of just shrugged his shoulders and went fine. <laughs> you know, another problem that I don't have to deal with. So I think, yes, he, people kind of interpret into him what they want to see in him, and, and his uh, legacy has in, endured in that way. He is, to use that most wonderful and heavily overused of German political terms, a Projektionsfläche, <laughs> a, a surface onto which you can project whatever you want to see. But I also wonder maybe whether some of his popularity comes down to the fact that his biography encapsulates a large part of Germany's story in the 20th century. So for the benefit of uh, listeners who may not be quite as intimately familiar with Germany's post-war history as Katja, the um, Helmut Schmidt was born uh, on, I think, December the 23rd, 1918, very shortly after the German Empire had ceased to exist, and obviously in the aftermath of the First World War. And um, he spent his childhood in the chaotic years of the Weimar Republic. Um, he then served um, in the Luftwaffe anti-air defense uh, units and then uh, after that he was in the Wehrmacht and I think he actually served on the the Eastern Front um, and then after that um, his sort of entry into politics um, really as a young man sort of coincided with um, the foundation of West Germany and the, the growth of all of these sort of new democratic ideals but also the um, what Hannah Arendt the German Jewish political philosopher called the sort of first time a society had ever really been deprogrammed from totalitarianism do you think there's anything in that Katja? I think there is to some extent because people saw a way in him to kind of reconcile your past with Germany's presence and and do it successfully and and with with credibility 
that they wanted to, to see kind of applied to, to the whole of society. And it is interesting, actually, that at the time he was also more popular with middle-aged and older um, Germans and, and perhaps exactly for that reason. I think another aspect of him, though, that people also liked was just that he came across as a very human figure. Um, he had lots of vices. He chain-smoked, for example, um, throughout his entire life. So even when, when he was older um, and after the Berlin Wall came down, it, when it kind of smoking became more, more frowned upon, he would still sit there during TV interviews, always with a fag in his hand or sometimes with a pipe, um, and make absolutely no you know apologies about that. Uh, he drank... Le- he was such a heroic smoker. Um, <laughs> th- so I, I read in the Times obituary of Schmidt that um, he was rumoured to have stockpiled 30,000 menthol cigarettes because he was worried the EU, or the European community back then, I should say, um, would ban them. <laughs> and there's this lovely um, diplomatic record from the early 1970s where um, he went for dinner with the British ambassador at the time, um, Sir Nicholas Henderson, who wrote back to London afterwards that um, Schmidt had turned up with a large leather bag and containing pipes, cigarettes, tobacco, a lighter and matches. And he just dumped it on the table and then chain smoked throughout the entire dinner. And the ambassador was appalled. Um, and apparently um, people still turn up to uh, Schmidt's grave and um, leave him little presents of cigarettes for the afterlife. And the only other German I've seen that happen to is um, Marlene Dietrich, who's, who's buried near my house in Berlin. Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite a similar thing, actually, with him, because it's so iconic. You, when you think Schmidt as a German, you think of him with a cigarette in his hand or in his mouth, um, because you just never, ever saw him without that. Even, I mean, he did live to a ripe old age. He was 96, I think, when he died. And so, you know, people were always saying, oh, it's going to come back to haunt him. And, and he almost defied, you know, all of the health crazes that became and then the fitness crazes that became so popular in the late 80s and, and mid 90s as well. Uh, that, you know, people kind of liked that about him as well. He seemed to stand for an older time where, where you weren't constantly lectured on what is and isn't healthy and what you should and shouldn't do. It's the same with his, his addiction to uh, cola as well. He drank litres and litres of the stuff, even when... Um, people began to be quite conscious of the sugar content in them and, and people began to switch over to, you know, sort of diet coke and that he, he wasn't having any of that and just continued drinking uh, yeah, litres of Coca-Cola during his working day as well. Um, well, Katja, you've, you've very nicely um, laid out one of the reasons why Schmidt was so very highly regarded, um, his response to the RAF left-wing terror attacks in the late 1970s. But um, I think it might be an idea to just rattle through his, his greatest hits, starting uh, with the 1962 North Sea flooding in his native Hamburg, where Schmidt was um, police senator at the time. And um, despite it being banned under the German constitution, he um, called in the army to help out with the uh, flood relief response. And um, Angela Merkel later said that, because she was born in Hamburg, but by that point she was growing up in across the Iron Curtain in East Germany, that she'd been sort of following it um, on television because uh, she had relatives left in Hamburg and she'd been really, really impressed with um, Schmidt's response, even though she was about eight years old at the time. And then uh, afterwards, when he was asked about it, he said, um, well, all you need is a strong will and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Also, just the fact that, you know, it's, it's completely against the Constitution and, and he decides to go ahead with that in any case. Another example where he was completely unfazed by uh, what was going on was the uh, so-called Mogadishu uh, crisis when a Lufthansa 
plane was abducted in October 1977 with with all of its passengers on board by the by the Red Army faction, which we've uh, mentioned before, and Palestinian uh, terrorists and politicians and police and everybody else was kind of faffing and running about and and it was live on television and, and the nation was in crisis and Schmidt just cool as a cucumber said that I sat there and basically said we're not negotiating with terrorists we need to deal with this even if we're actually you know risking the lives of the passengers on board and luckily it ended uh, well for him but that's something that's so stuck with Germans, I think the fact that he he sort of sat through this crisis absolutely cool, um, not flinching uh, one bit and and just kind of sat it out really, also contributed to the legend that um, that continued uh, well after his political career ended um, with the election of of Helmut Kohl and. Uh, 1982. Another factor that um, has sort of contributed to his legendary posthumous or, or sort of post office status was the so-called um, NATO doppelpischlus, the, the double track strategy he adopted, which um, was an, uh, just an amazing feat of diplomatic ambiguity. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s, where he simultaneously managed to keep open um, a negotiating line with Moscow, much to the distaste of some people in Washington, while at the same time sort of negotiating with the Americans about the possibility of putting cruise missiles in on West German soil, which just strikes me as an, an absolute masterpiece in riding two horses at once or dancing at two weddings at once, as one would say in German. Yeah, and it, it exemplifies perfectly how everyone sees and in what they want to see. So the people that were in favour of, of a continuation of Brandt's um, Ostpolitik, so the opening up towards East Germany, um, which had been very, very critical actually under, under Brandt and Schmidt somehow gets away with it because he, as you say, manages to maintain relations with the with the West to a degree where he's actually regarded as a hardline kind of cold warrior really by, by Americans to this day. Um, and it is interesting that he rides those sort of twin tigers in the middle of the, of the Cold War um, so well. Um, yeah, another thing that Germans in particular like is also the, the idea of him as this hard-working, dedicated civil servant. Uh, he's said to have worked up to 18 hours a day, each and every day, basically just worked all the way through and, and just fueled by the the you know cigarettes and the and the cola that we were talking about earlier and that's another thing I think that Germans particularly value is often said about Angela Merkel as well um, that what what people regardless of their political persuasion like about her is the idea of dedication sense of duty hard work that goes into it Schmidt was of course. Um early in his career a colossal anglophile as we're going to come on to in the second half of this episode but before we go to an ad break i'd like to mention the one blemish on his copybook that i think is maybe not so widely known about uh, and that is his relationship with the nazi military so in 1981 the um, israeli prime minister at the time menachem bergin accused Schmidt of never having repudiated his oath of loyalty to Hitler. It was a very serious thing to say, and I think it was technically true. I'm absolutely going to stress here that I don't think Schmidt was in any way some sort of springtime for Hitler Nazi relic like Franz Liebkind and the producers. But he did have a pretty troubling relationship with the old Waffen-SS 
veterans group. So back in the 50s, when he was still a fairly obscure young MP, he was very cosy with an SS veterans association called the Hilfsgemeinschaft auf Gegenseitigkeit der ehemaligen Waffen SS. Well said. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in 1957, he told this group that um, back when he'd been a Wehrmacht first lieutenant on the uh, Eastern Front, he'd been able to sleep peacefully whenever he knew a Waffen SS division was nearby. And then uh, in the 1970s, when he was Chancellor, Schmidt actually um, lobbied the Italian Prime Minister to release a guy called Herbert Kapler. Um, Kapler had been an SS and Sicherheitsdienst officer in Nazi-occupied Italy, where he'd arranged for the arrest of more than a thousand Jews who were subsequently transported to Auschwitz. And uh, more notoriously, he'd overseen the Ardiatine Caves massacre, where 335 Italian non-combatants were executed in the space of five hours. And so here you have the Chancellor of West Germany, the successor of Willy Brandt, using federal funds to fly his wife out to Italy 19 times to visit Kapler in jail. And like I say, I really don't think that um, Schmidt had any residue of Nazi ideology in him, but there's something about these uh, shadows in his record that do leave a pretty, does leave a pretty bitter taste in my mouth. I totally agree. And, and what also leaves a bitter taste in some, to some extent is the way that this hasn't entered his legacy or the way that people remember it in, in any shape or form. I'd venture if you walked out into the street and asked your average German about Helmut Schmidt and, and asked them to like sort of name 10 facts about him, that would not register. And even if you told people the story... I, I'm pretty sure most people don't actually know about this because it just never really um, stuck in his, in his record or on him in any shape or form. And that in itself is, is a disturbing side, really, of, of Schmidt's uh, person and also his legacy to some extent. Well, he's certainly a, a complex character and a complicated uh, historical figure, uh, which many Germans still see with rose-tinted eyes. And so I'm quite glad that we do have an expert here who will help us peel the layers of the onion that is Helmut Schmidt. Um, who might it be, I hear you ask? Well, Oliver will reveal all after a short break. Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the only podcast that sticks two dots each above its O's and its A's. I'm exceedingly pleased to say that we have our very first guest on Tommy's and Jerry's. The German historian Dr. Matthias Häusler has spent exactly half of his life in Britain and is therefore at least as Anglo-German as either of us. A former junior research fellow at Magdalen College, Cambridge, he's now a historian at the University of Regensburg. Guten Tag, Matthias. Guten Tag. Thanks very much for having me. Um, does, do people say Servus in Regensburg? Is it Gru Scott territory? I never quite know. It's, it's probably Servus. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite Bavarian. It's part of the Oberpfalz. And um, Matthias, where did your Anglophilia come from? If that's not a dirty word to use these days. Well, right. Um, it's sort of by accident, really. Uh, so when I, when I was 14, uh, my parents moved to the UK for work. And at that age, I, I obviously moved uh, moved with them. And I had little idea of what I was getting myself into at the time. Um, but I enjoyed myself uh, you know, immensely. And basically, they moved back. And, and I stayed uh, for, for another, as you said, 16 years until 
you know, Brexit hit and I decided to, to move back to Germany. And your uh, Anglophilia has also influenced your work, hasn't it? Your, your dissertation looked at Helmut Schmidt's uh, special relationship with Britain. And eight years ago, you actually interviewed him about his school exchange trip to Manchester in 1932. Uh, what did he have to tell you about the origins of his Anglophilia? Yeah, um, well, I mean, Schmidt always made a lot about his, his personal connection with Britain. You know, as he said, this school exchange with Manchester, three weeks in, in 1932 was his first trip abroad ever. He was, he was born in 1918 and it certainly made, made a lasting uh, impression on him. So when I, when I interviewed him towards the the very end of his life, he could still kind of remember the, the street that his exchange family uh, lived in. Um, and it was, he didn't make that up because I checked it on Google Maps immediately afterwards and it was exactly where, where he said it was uh, and so on. Uh, but, but, but there were other factors also drawing him to Britain. I mean, generally Hamburg, as you know, this kind of North German port city with centuries old links in terms of trade and culture uh, with Britain. Uh, in the immediate post-war years, he was quite influenced by the British military governor of Hamburg, Sir Morgan Barry. He kind of invited young Germans interested in politics to tea parties, to his house, and, and Schmidt picked up a lot there. Um, but more generally, I think, like after the Second World War, where he had served, of course, on the Eastern Front, and he was very briefly a British prisoner of war, he was still a relatively young guy. Uh, so he was desperately looking for kind of new political orientation, for new political ideas. And here that the Labour Party under Clement Attlee really was a, a role model for, for young socialists like him on, on the continent, um, particularly since Schmidt was part of the Hamburg branch of the SPD, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, which was you know, more pragmatic, less ideological than the National Party at the time. And that sort of coincided with what he saw as the, the athlete government's broader appeal in Britain, you know, not just confined to, you know, class politics, but sort of more national government. That's uh, that's it, where, where he really got into kind of British politics. And he went on, you know, lots of trips to Britain and had lots of exchanges and, you know, the Young Socialists International and so on. So it was, he was sincere when, when he talked about his, his anglophilia later on. Yeah, and I guess Hamburg has got these uh, Hanseatic links to, to Britain to some extent as well, more so than as, as if he had been, say, a, a southern German politician. So if that was well known, was Britain delighted to see an Anglophile elected as the German Chancellor in, in 1974? And if... This, if, if this Anglophilia was there, did this also allow Schmidt perhaps to have better relationships with his British counterparts? So he, he uh, coincided with, with Harold Wilson, James Callaghan and, and Margaret Thatcher. Did he get on with them better than, than other uh, German chancellors? Yeah, one would have expected that, uh, I suppose. So, so, so in 1974, uh, I mean, the scene really seemed set uh, for, you know, an Anglo-German rapprochement. As it were, I mean, Schmidt was well-known, respected in the UK, links uh, for the Königswinter conferences, uh, exchanges with the Labour Party. His relationship with Dennis Healy uh, dated back to the late 40s. They've both been, you know, Secretaries of Defence, Minister of Defence in, in the 60s. Um, but actually, um, the fact that the Labour Party was kind of elected almost simultaneously in, in early 74 posed, posed a problem uh, for that, because, of course, the Labour Party at the time was set on renegotiating its terms of EC membership and then, then kind of, you know, of course, having the 75 referendum afterwards. And that, that was something Schmidt never really understood and could never quite forgive. 
um, because he sensed that, that Harold Wilson, as, as prime minister, ultimately wanted Britain to remain in the European community, as it was called at the time, and that the renegotiation referendum strategy was actually just a ploy uh, to, to keep the divided Labour Party together over, over Europe. Um, so Schmidt saw that as a very kind of cynical prioritization of domestic or party politics at a time when, when Europe had much more urgent things to tackle. And, and he feared that that strategy might actually backfire and, and make Britain drop out of the EC. So, so that really was a problem quite early on. And, and to prevent a sort of bigger fallout, he, he cooperated closely with the French, with the French president, Giscard d'Estaing, over those renegotiations. And that, of course, then reinforced the, you know, what is often called the Franco-German axis in the European community at the expense of, of Britain. So, so there was this brief hope for a sort of tripartite sort of leadership of Britain, France and Germany within the EC very briefly in 74. But that very brief window of opportunity was then kind of destroyed by the renegotiation referendum uh, decision. And um, Schmidt would often speak quite bitterly about Britain, at least as a political entity later in his life. Was that just down to his disillusionment with the role Britain had played in Europe? Or was it something wider? And did that disgruntlement um, compromise his sort of uh, basic Anglophilia beyond politics? That's an excellent question. I mean, that's really key. I mean, that, that, that is his story. But of course, we also should historicize that and, and kind of look at where he's coming from as well. So it's important to say that throughout his chancellorship, uh, Britain and Germany cooperated extremely well in, in many areas of international politics. Uh, in the kind of reheating of the Cold War in the late 70s, early 80s, but also bilaterally, I mean, including the, the fight against domestic terrorism, the, the hijacking of the Lufthansa airplane, where actually the Callaghan government played a key role in kind of solving uh, that. But all that cooperation in, in kind of Schmidt's mind became overshadowed by, by the, the European issue. Um, so with Callaghan, you had the British refusal to join the European monetary system and the forerunner of, of today's euro currency, more or less. And even with, with Thatcher, you know, the, the famous fight to reduce Britain's contributions to the EC budget, the BBQ, the British budget question, or the, the bloody British question, as, as some would have it. Um, so, so you have all this bilateral cooperation and Cold War cooperation on the one hand, but you also have these kind of European issues on the other hand. And, you know, British leaders, because they kind of lack this emotional, overarching commitment to European integration, they were quite easily able to compartmentalize these things and say, look, we have problems in the EC, but, you know, all the other cooperation is fine. Uh, but for Schmidt, that was not possible because for him, European integration was kind of really a central part of German national strategy. So, so Schmidt came to regard Britain's problems with the EC merely as a symptom of a sort of bigger indifference towards the British indifference towards the European continent. So, you know, he famously claimed in the 1980s that, you know, for most British people, the channel between, you know, Britain and France was bigger than the Atlantic Ocean between Britain and the United States. In 2013, he said that the goal had been right in kind of vetoing British membership uh, in the 1960s. So, so that, that's, of course, you know, grossly inaccurate and unfair because Britain actually was very Europeanized at the time. And there were lots and lots of connections in many, many areas. But for Schmidt, as for West German politicians in general, uh, the European integration process was so central to the country's post-war national strategy, post-war rehabilitation, uh, 
the fact that Britain seemed to kind of threaten the achievements of the process led to this more general erosion of trust in, in Britain's value as an ally kind of more generally. It certainly strikes me as something that he takes incredibly personally. It's almost like a, a slighted lover who's been rejected by, you know, by, by his, uh, uh, yeah, by, by the one that he craves by the one that he wants um and in that regard i think you know he turns eventually to france doesn't he as a as a partner for europe and as a partner for that closer european um cooperation that he wants um but did he ever love france the way that he loved britain no uh, i mean definitely not i mean <laughs> it's funny you should say that because in his memoirs he kind of writes about his disappointment with his puppy love uh, Great Britain. Uh, but France, I mean, he, he didn't even speak French. Um, that's actually quite ironic because the French president at the time just kind of sang, could not speak German, so the two actually always had to communicate in English. So the Franco-German <laughs> couple was kind of kept alive by the English language. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I think Schmidt realized very early on, and, and in my book, I, I argue that that break actually came in the 60s, so before he came Chancellor. Um, Schmidt realized very early on that, that France, as a sort of direct neighbor of West Germany and as one of the founding member states of the European community, was central to Germany in the world so to an extent that Britain simply, simply was not. And that, that really guided his foreign policy. So his kind of foreign policy rested on two main pillars, you know, the United States, transatlantic alliance, NATO on the one hand, and France as regards the European community, European integration on, on the other. And Britain, by contrast, simply wasn't that strategically important to Germany, even if you know, British interests on paper were often much closer to German interests than, than to French interests, for example. And you know, that's, of course, a pattern we, we keep seeing all, all the time, that you know, you know, German car makers should really help us over Brexit, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, they kind of lack that, that overarching kind of strategic vision that, that Germany has of European integration and, and of course, the centrality of France in, in that. On the... Um subject of those German car makers, one of the striking parallels between Schmidt's career and the present is that he, like Merkel, found himself fielding desperate appeals from a British Prime Minister to try and reform uh, Britain's relationship with the European Union. Um, what do you think Schmidt would have made of the Brexit project? And also, people often say that Merkel might have prevented it had she been able to sort of provide Cameron with more concessions. Do you think Schmidt would have been able to do so in her place? That, that's a good one. Um, well, I think, um, given his kind of bitterness towards Britain uh, towards the end of his, his life, I think like, like many German commentators, he would kind of somehow self-righteously have seen it as kind of the logical combination of British-European policy ever since 19... 19- uh, 45. Um, by the end of his life, he, he really believed that you know, close European integration was the only way for European countries to maintain any influence in the ever more globalized bigger world. And sort of the idea of going it alone, isolationism is something that certainly would not have appealed to him uh, at all. Um, would he have helped Britain more than, say, Merkel, for example? I, I doubt it, kind of, kind of looking back on you know, his time in office, because he already had the same debate in 74, 75 with Wilson. But Wilson is sort of desperate and says, you know, please give us something, then I can kind of commit myself to continuing membership, which it says, 
well, I, I'm sorry, you know, we have to stick to the rules of the game and, and mm. it's important that the community holds together. And, you know, if everybody agrees, then fine, but I can't do anything bilaterally. And it's the same with Thatcher over the budget. Um, the, the minute that something is is seen as kind of threatening, the, the very foundations of the European Union and European community at the time, then the Germans would immediately retreat. So it's, it would have been possible to do something with only as part of a sort of bigger European effort, not not bilaterally. You know, whatever the you know similarities of interest on paper. So if you feel that the problems haven't really changed and and the fundamental issues that Britain has with and in Europe uh, is still very much the same. Is there any hope for British-German relationships, um, you know, the relationship going forward post-Merkel? So is there maybe a, a Schmidt among the, uh, you know, remaining two candidates, Scholz or Laschet, uh, who could, um, you know, maybe take the relationship forward and reforge it uh, post-Brexit and post-Merkel? Have you got any hope there? Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a Schmidt among the candidates, really. I mean, of course, Olaf Scholz kind of tried hard to start himself it's sort of natural heir, the natural successor of Schmidt. Uh, as regards the British-German relationship, uh, I still think there's a lot of goodwill towards Britain among the German political class, and that there's an obvious uh, need to maintain the closest possible links in security and defense, also in, in trade and the economy. Um, but as I said, I think any sort of rapprochement um, is, is, is only, will only come about as part of a more general British-European, British-EU rapprochement. Like Germany won't stretch its hand, hands out alone. Um, and, and that is, is probably one lesson we can draw uh, from Schmidt's history with Britain, right? So there have often been hopes that Germany would somehow intervene on Britain's behalf, um, like the car makers doing Brexit, but it has actually never happened. And, and that's because when the chips come down, European integration process simply has been a central part of Germany's post-war national strategy in a way that is not for Britain and, and the Germans will never jinx that simply for the sake of the British, where the returns are you know, hard to predict in any case. Matthias, we were talking earlier about um, Helmut Schmidt's background in the Wehrmacht and, the, and his uh, continuous flirtation really with the entire scene of SS veterans and and so on and you hinted briefly at his at his early past as well overall taking that into account and uh, your research into Schmidt are the Germans right to revere him in the way that they do they, they seem to absolutely love him still and he, he holds this place of of being the good chancellor, the, the you know the post-war chancellor that united everyone behind him. Um, so, do you feel that that that's right, or does his legacy need to be uh, moderated somewhat? I mean, what's what's interesting is that he wasn't seen as a particularly outstanding chancellor during or immediately after his his time in office. Um, that really came later on as an elder statesman, as you say, when kind of. He had the authority of, you know, having steered Germany more or less successfully through the 70s when, when he had the wisdom of old age. And of course, also the media presence as, you know, editor of, of Die Zeit, the German kind of weekly newspaper, writing countless books, you know, appearing in all the television talk shows, chain smoking, all that. Uh, but at the time, he, he lacked the, the one big policy, right? Uh, the one big thing people commonly associate with, with him. So with now you had Westbindung kind of binding Germany towards the West. With Brandt, you had, of course, Ostpolitik, uh, kind of East-West Etat. And with Kohl, then you had German unification. Um, Schmidt, he was kind of a successful crisis manager. Um, I think he was so popular later on because he basically 
embodied the kind of West German political consensus until 1990 and tried to preserve that consensus against the rapidly changing world. Uh, so in a sense, he had this kind of small C conservative by instinct. Uh, and that's, I think, where where his appeal lay in, in later years, because people kind of could project that sort of relatively safe, clear uh, world uh, onto him. I mean, as, as somebody said, he was he was every conservative's favorite social democrat. <laughs> that's pro that's probably a bit like Schultz now, right? So, I mean, I mean that one is is interesting. Kind of Schmidt's role uh, in the Wehrmacht, um, and and the question is, of course, did it, did it actually you know help or? or hinder his you know pop popularity and, and appeal um i mean of, of course he wasn't a nazi right um he did not as far as you know really sympathize with nazi ideology he was already aware in the 30s that he had like a secret jewish grandfather um you know his first father had been sort of just with a child um and that kind of made him largely immune to that but he he served like most germans at the time in the Wehrmacht. he got drafted he served on the eastern front actually brezhnev uh, confronted him uh one time saying we know exactly the spot where you were kind of in, in the early 40s and what was you did there um, but as you said, said katia he did retain a, a certain loyalty to 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 the wehrmacht and then certainly to western bundeswehr um right to, to the very end of his life and you know in the 50s and 60s that probably helped him because a lot of germans had a kind of similar background there was still this kind of victimization discourse that you know all the germans had kind of fallen victim to you know one uh, ideologue uh, one one dictator um and there was also a lot of suspicion about you know socialists and communist influences within the social democratic party and you know would, would as always would the left be strong on national security and all that so and the fact that he had this Wehrmacht background probably served him in that regard and helped his image uh, particularly during his time as, as minister of, of defense um but later on it became more difficult as the people started to learn more about you know the atrocities of the Wehrmacht in the second world war uh, and Schmidt, as you said, was very became increasingly controversial in that sense because he maintained right towards the end of his life that you know the Wehrmacht had been, as he said, the the einzige anständige Verein, so, so you know the only decent, respectable institution in Nazi Germany, in spite of you know mounting evidence to the contrary, mm -hmm. um, and he did get a lot of criticism for that, including from people who were quite close to him, like Richard von Weizsäcker. So so that really was increasingly problematic issue of his later legacy. It's interesting that never that that never really entered the the public perception of him. If if you ask most Germans about him, then then that just isn't part of it. Um, and his image has re has remained relatively clean as a as a German chancellor, and it's just not really part of it. Well, there's certainly plenty more to discuss on the subject. Schmidt is a is a controversial character um, for historians, but not so much for Germans. And that discrepancy in itself is is an interesting one. Uh, and he doesn't seem to have lost anything of his political glitter. But I'm afraid our time's up. Um, and here's a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Tommy's Jerry's. And please do send us your questions and also your observations on anything that we've said today. And if you're interested to find out more about Matthias' work, you can find him on Twitter, where his handle is at M-A-T-H-A-E. And he writes books. What's the latest from Matthias? Well, I mean, topical one would be Helmut Schmidt and British-German relations, uh, European misunderstanding which is actually now available as a paperback. So if you want to read more about Schmidt and, and Britain, Schmidt the Brits, you know, 
you can find it at any good book retailer, Helmut Schmidt and British German Relations. Thank you. I'm sure we can post a, a link underneath the um, podcast outlets as well. Danke, Matthias Häusler, and bis bald mal wieder. Goodbye from Sussex. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye from Munich. And auf Wiederhören from Berlin. Goodbye.